What do you see as the main elements of this super forecasting approach? If you don't issue your forecast in a form that can be back-tested, that we can revisit and say, was that a good forecast or a bad forecast? You're basically, you know, it's a bit like um, fortune-telling. I think of weather forecasting as one of the few Socratic areas of domain expertise because it knows what it knows and it knows the limits of that knowledge. So what we need is we need to find a way for economists to put their hand up and say, I think the chance of recession have gone from, let's say, 10% per year. I think to the, for next year, it's 35% or whatever. And then at least you get an effective number. Welcome to another episode of Policy Podcast. We're going to try and stay within 20 minutes. Uh, wish us luck. Uh, I'm here with my colleague and friend, Jean Tunney, and we're going to talk about a, something that's happening at the Bank of England. Over to you, Jean. Hello, Nicholas. Yes. Uh, well, last month, the Bank of England announced that Ben Bernanke, so the former uh, chair of the Federal Reserve in the US, he is to lead a review into forecasting at the Bank of England. So the, the court of the Bank of England is pleased to announce Dr. Ben Bernanke has agreed to lead a review into the bank's forecasting and related processes during times of significant uncertainty. Well, we've had plenty of those. And he'll be supported by the bank's independent evaluation office. Now, Nicholas, you've had some thoughts on what Ben Bernanke could offer to the Bank of England regarding forecasting, haven't you? So would you be able to uh, give us an overview of what those thoughts are, please? Sure. So um, their thoughts, I'm not terribly hopeful, and that's an amazing thing to say uh, about Ben Bernanke. I regard Ben Bernanke happens to have a Nobel Prize on his shelf. I, you'll notice that I don't. Um, and I also think he's a great guy. You know, he's a very sensible, practical um, economist with a lot of understanding of empirical economics and happened to be one of the world's experts on the Great Depression at the time when, boy, did we need an expert on the Great Depression in the Fed. So that's all great. I fear that Ben Bernanke, like, like, like a really scandalously large proportion of economists, um, are so caught up in their own discipline that they haven't noticed what has happened uh, in adjacent areas. And this is a little bit like uh, what's been going on is something quite like what Daniel Kahneman and Danny uh, and, and Amos Tversky, if I got that right, um, were cooking up with uh, behavioural economics. Um, it's happened a little since then, but a guy that many people will have heard of, Philip Tetlock, um, started, uh, he got tenure in about 1982 uh, or three. And uh, he decided that he would now engage in a long-term project that he always wanted to engage in, but you can't if you don't have tenure because you get sacked before you don't get a publication if this is a long-range thing. And what he wanted to measure was, do geopolitical experts, um, uh, you can call Tom Friedman, he certainly a, 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 um, poses as a geopolitical expert, the New York Times columnist, but also... Uh, uh, intelligence analysts, academics, uh, inter international relations academics, if you ask them to forecast um, events, uh, do they 
add value? Do they, the fact that it's quite clear they know more than your average bear, uh, does that translate into actually having actionably better capacity to say what's going to happen? And the answer was, um, on average, barely. Uh, and then he divided that up into experts that did add something and they didn't add that much and experts that actually were worse than random <laughs> or worse than a naive prediction. Uh, and he divided them up into hedgehogs and foxes. Uh, hedgehogs know one big thing and that means that their forecasts are worse than you, your, yours or mine, uh, Jane, uh, because we're just sort of doing our best with it, whereas the hedgehog will have one big thing, he'll be anti-communist or pro-communist or this or that. Uh, and that makes their forecast worse than a fox. I think of someone like uh, the economist John Maynard Keynes or Paul Krugman as a fox, um, someone who knows many things and is trying to balance uh, trying to balance uh, all those things and to work out how much this matters and how much that matters and how much do I know and so on. Now, that's pretty striking, but it's not, uh, but, but Tedlock doesn't give us much to, it, it doesn't tell us exactly what to do, but there is one thing that the study showed us, and it didn't, we didn't actually need the study to show us, but it gives us a very concrete illustration of a problem, which is, and this goes on in economics, which is that if you don't issue your forecast in a form that can be back-tested, that we can revisit and say, was that a good forecast or a bad forecast? And how did it compare with your peers? You're basically, you know, it's a bit like um, fortune telling. Mm. And to do that, what Tetlock did was he forced analysts to say precisely what they were predicting would happen. Or in fact, he would specify uh, something like... Um, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev will continue to be the secretary of the general committee of the Communist Party, whatever it was called then, by the end of 1988. Uh, what are the chances? And then you would have to say, I think the chances are 88% or 23%. Not probably, which means somewhere between 51% and 100%, uh, and, and not unlikely, and not you can't rule out the, the you can't rule this out the the sort of things you read in a newspaper column. Now we need to do that with economic forecasts. And um, I might I, I'll, I'm happy to go on with this monologue, but it's gone on for a fair while. So I'll let you uh, yeah. jump in with any thoughts you have, and then I'll uh, and either you or I can explain how what you need to do to get economic forecasts to be back testable. Yeah, yeah. So just. For background, so Philip Tetlock is a Canadian-American political science uh, professor at University of Pennsylvania. Yep. And yeah, he wrote that book, Super Forecasting, or Super Forecasting. I was going to get onto that. Yeah, which and, and that's, book about that's the book in the a moment. People yeah. can watch, not the people yeah. who are listening. I'm holding it up to the microphone. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so he was looking at, uh, you mentioned geopolitical forecasts, but you know, we're interested in economic forecasts now. We know, and I guess the general public knows, that economic forecasts haven't had... You know, there have been some notable failures, and I mean, in Australia, they go way back. I mean, I always remember the when. I mean, I guess I was young at the time; I was in high school. But the Treasury and was forecasting the soft landing during uh, was it the 19, 1990, 1991 recession? Yeah, 
ended up being the worst recession since uh, yeah. depression. That's yeah. right. That's right. And then, you know, the problems. Yeah, and there are other notable examples. More recently, we've, we've been expecting wages to pick up. and For, for about, yeah, well over a decade. It just goes yeah. on. And, the, and to their credit, the Treasury and the Reserve Bank published these graphs. I might see if I can put one uh, in the show notes or on screen, or the editor can put one on screen, where you see wage growth gradually trending down with every year the forecast is for it to come back to the long-term, at what was the long-term trend average. It's no longer the long-term trend trend average. Yeah, and there are some charts like that in the latest intergenerational report that the Treasury's put out that Jim Chalmers launched today, yep. Yeah, um, would show just how bad those long-run projections have been. Uh, so, you know, it's a it's a problem both in the short term and the yeah and the long term uh, with economics. Yes. Yeah. So, well. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I suppose. Um, yeah. It'd be good to sort of to diagnose. I mean, what are the what's the actual issue? I mean, the problem is that the the economy the economy is fundamentally difficult to forecast. Well, there's a, no, but I mean, we're not even trying. So to try, we would nail economic forecasts down to something that can be properly backtested. So I we have a forecast. You may know what the Treasury's forecast is for wages or growth next year. I don't. Uh, you just give us a number, even if you don't know it, uh, the sort of thing you think it should be around. Uh, what for wages? Uh, wages or for growth or for economic growth? Uh, it's probably around two percent or two and a half percent. Two and a half. Okay, yeah, so yeah. two and a half percent. So our first problem is that are we going to if 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 the forecast is two point five percent and it comes in at two point six two percent, is that a success or is that a failure? Uh, so because two point five percent, we call it a point forecast. And the chances that it comes in exactly at that number are infinitesimally small. I just have to add decimal points and eventually it won't be 2.5000000. It will be, it will fall on one side or the other of 2.5. So we need, if a, if we're going to backtest a forecast, we need a forecast that we can declare a success or a failure. And the next thing we need is we need the forecaster to tell us how confident they are that it's going, that that event will happen. And that happens to be exactly how weather forecasters forecast. They give us an event, it will rain, which I'm sure has a meteorological definition of, you know, more than this amount of precipitation in 24 hours or in, in an hour. It will rain and it will rain with this degree of probability. Now, what's beautiful about that is Daniel Kahneman says that all uh, I, he there, there are places where he said this. I think he's no doubt he's been more circumspect in other places, but I've heard him say all professions are overconfident. Well, weather forecasters are not overconfident because c the confidence with which they express themselves becomes part of the metric by which we judge them. And so they make a point of being exactly the right degree of confidence. Um, so forecasting, I think of weather forecasting as one of the few Socratic areas of domain expertise because it knows what it knows and it knows the limits of that knowledge. So that's what we need to start to try to do with economists. 
And I think it was you who sent me this uh, thing in the last six months where some of the techniques that Philip Tedlock has perfected, has developed, um, have started to show dividends in economic forecasting. Now, one, one thing we haven't explained yet is that, that in that book, Super Forecasting, Philip Tedlock took the ideas with which he demonstrated how little value was added and how some types of people added more value than others. And he asked himself the question, could we identify the very best, the people who consistently add the most value? Could we understand more about how they do that? Could we get them together and get them to help each other? And the answer is that using these simple and commonsensical techniques, you can actually start to get a lot better at, at, at certainly at weather forecasting, certainly at um, geopolitical forecasting. And now there's some evidence that we may be able to get better at economic forecasting. Right. So with weather forecasting, so in your, you've been working on a, an article on this and you've identified that weather forecasts are much better than they were 30 years ago. Yeah. Now that's because of, I mean, from my understanding is that's because of the ingestion of so much new data. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen with that integrated marine observing system, for example, the IMOS yeah. uh, organization yeah. that we've done some work for that, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of data that comes from the ocean yeah. and, and that helps with weather forecasts. They've got huge numerical models and there are physical processes involved that they can actually model. Yeah. Whereas with economics, it's a lot, a lot more challenging. So, um, yeah, weather, I guess it, it is embarrassing how economic forecasting hasn't, hasn't improved. And I, I suppose that does suggest we need to, we need to adopt a different approach. It's not necessarily going to be, we're not necessarily going to improve our forecasts by building more complicated models or bringing in more data. Yep. Perhaps we do need to adopt a new approach along the lines of this super forecasting methodology. Mm. And you mentioned, yep, uh, there was that evidence about how they're forecasting the Fed rate decisions yep. uh, much more accurately than others. Their super forecasting uh, approach. So... I guess you were starting to allude to it, but what do you see as the, or starting to unpack it, what do you see as the main elements of this super forecasting approach, Nicholas? So, um, the, I mean, the, what, one of the things that's, that I think is quite interesting and useful is that like Daniel Kahneman, who was the last person who really, I won't say revolutionized because it's not true, but he really, he started a whole new way of thinking about things within economics and managed to get himself a Nobel Prize for his trouble. And he's a psychologist and so is Philip Tedlock. And Philip Tedlock is drawing our attention to something that's incredibly important, but because it lies outside of economics, economists just ignore it. And what he's saying is that if you want to be a good forecaster, you must meet certain, uh, you, you must forecast in a particular way, um, I'll say you must have a certain kind of psychology. Now, in fact, in philosophy, there is a, a term for this. I don't much fancy it, but the term is virtue epistemology. That is, if you want to, if you want to be good at knowing, if you want to be a good scientist, if you want to be good at mastering a domain and being useful to other people by not being overconfident, by actually knowing how much you know and making it count, then you have to exhibit virtues. You have to exhibit actual virtues. You have to have the courage of your convictions. You have to have the humility to know um, when other people or events might 
be make it time for you to revise your opinion. Is this reminding you of lots of economists you've talked to, Gene? <laughs> uh, perhaps not. So, so the list that I put in this um, op-ed that I've written for the Financial Times and may have been published by the time you uh, people get to listen to this conversation, um, what qualities does he see in super forecasters? As well as mastering the ne necessary formal techniques, which we economists are very strong on, they're open-minded, careful, curious, and self-critical, aware like Socrates of how little they know, they're constantly seeking to learn from unfolding events and from respected colleagues. So that's how you forecast. I would argue that is how you do anything that is expert. And there's a really important thing here because if we can't, you see, even if we can't improve forecasting much. And one thing I do want to throw in parenthetically on that question is that when economists make, for when a central bank or a treasury makes forecasts, this is a forecast for, for, for of how certain economic aggregates are going to move that they plan to try to manipulate on, on the way through. So it's a very, uh, it's a very mm. different kind of forecasting. The forecasters of the weather don't say, well, it's going to be a 30% chance of rain on Tuesday and we're going to be trying to make it a 30% chance of rain on, or, or we're going to be making, trying to make it a 20% a chance of rain. So, so it's, it's a lot more complicated. But one of the things that a super forecaster might do, a person of that kind of um, temperament might do, is they might say, well, are point forecasts much used to us? And the answer is, I don't think they, I mean, uh, quite apart from the fact that we can't backtest them, uh, I think the most important thing I want to know as a business person doing planning of for something or as an employee, uh, and I'm thinking, should I buy a house or buy an investment property or whatever? Seeing, I think the most important metric I want, the most important thing I want forecast is what is the chance of a recession in the next six months or 12 months or two years? So I think we should be trying to forecast a lot more along those lines. Now, there's a problem, and that is that, a, well, look, firstly, let's talk about the problem of forecasting at the moment. Because we can't, because economists' forecasts are not probabilistic, because we don't test an economist according to, um, uh, we, we, we don't, they don't issue those forecasts like there is a 40% chance of recession or whatever. Almost all the time, even when a recession is more likely than most other times, a recession is still unlikely. It's still unlikely that there will be a recession. So economic forecasters are in the same situation as footy tippers, which is, I might want to say that the that the. Um, I might want to say that the uh, back marker, what do you call the, the last, the non-favorite in a horse race or a football or a football game? Um, the anyway, the, the 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 I might want to say that I think the favorite has got an unusually large chance of losing, but I still think it's more than fifty percent. So if people are just adding up the, um, if people are just saying how many times did you tip the right answer, then. We're never going. People are not going. We're not going hunting for who knows that this is a that who's got some extra information, which is that for some reason or other, some 
some particular players not in form or something or other, um, there's a lower chance of there's a lower chance of of uh, the favourite winning than usual. No one has an incentive to do that if we're going to give a prize out to the person at the end of the year who tipped more winners than anyone else. And that's real. And that's what happens in economics. So of the last 18 recessions, economists picked, uh, tipped about one or two of them. And if you're, if you're competing with other economists with how often you got it right or wrong, that's actually quite a rational strategy. So what we need is we need to find a way for economists to put their hand up and say, I think the chance of a recession have gone from, let's say, 10% per year or something like that, maybe a bit more. I think to the, for next year, it's 35% or whatever. And then at least you get an effective, uh, then at least you get an effective, um, uh, you know, number. Right. So is this what Ben Bernanke should be recommending? He should be recommending that the Bank of England, it provides percentage estimates of regarding its forecast or how confident it is. I mean, to an extent, it does that, I think, doesn't it? It has fan charts. It has fan charts. It has fan charts. And I think, yeah, once you try to operationalize this in economics, you end up with a lot of fan charts. Now, fan charts, I may be able to show those on the screen um, uh, and in the show notes, fan charts show you a, a point forecast through time. And then they say this, if you want to be, if, if the 70% confidence interval is this fat and the 90% confidence interval is this fat. In other words, if you want to know what we're, the, the range within which we're 90% sure, that's the range. Now, the problem is that range isn't helpful to anyone because <laughs> a 90% range usually takes you from some one of the most savage recessions you can possibly imagine through to boom conditions. Um, mm. So I think um, so so we do, so we do need to think about that, but what really I think that there's a few things here. Um, one of the things is that we need to get uh, it, this is a good way to get different teams and different forecasters to compete with each other. It's a good way to compare forecasters so that you're constantly getting feedback on who's good and who's not. The other thing that I think it, well, it also enables us to surface, you can have a different, um, you can have a, a different series, which is not in any central bank or treasury that I know of, which is the chances of recession. You can have that series and you can have people trying to forecast that. Um, now there's a further problem. And the problem is that we get feedback on um, we get feedback on what growth was every time we forecast it because we we get a growth number. We don't get feedback on the chances of we don't get feedback on what the question was there a recession. Well, except that the answer is no. Uh, it only varies once a decade or so. That's a really big problem because if you want to ask who's the best person at forecasting recessions then you've got to wait 20 or 30 years to even start to short, sort the sheep from the goats. Yeah. So Philip Tetlock's actually been working on this, uh, on a problem. It's not in economics. It's in is his the area that he manages to get the most funding from, which is in intelligence organizations and so on. But what he's trying to ask is, can we leverage the credibility of forecasters of things we do get a lot of feedback from for these other areas where we get less feedback. 
And I think the answer is yes, we should be able to do that. Uh, and we must be able to do that in some areas and maybe not in others. And, it, and we don't know about this area, but that's the sort of thing that we should be exploring. Okay. So for economics, so just, we're getting close to the time. Yeah, so we're we're out for time. But just, just to summarize, you're arguing, are you arguing for open sourcing? Well, that's a separate thing. That, that was what okay. I was going to get to, which is that, so what I want to see is that this is one area given that we've outsourced all kinds of things in government that we shouldn't have outsourced, maybe we could outsource some other things we should. And we, this is the sort of thing that we can outsource, or I don't even mean outsource. We can, what we should do is, is the, the, the Bank of England, the, the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia can get with the program and the program is the smartest person is always outside the room. And in some areas you can, in some sense, bring them in. And in other areas, you can't. But in the area of forecasting, you can. And you can hold a Tetlock-like forecasting competition. You can say, we're trying to get forecasts for this and this and this and chances of a recession in six months, one year and two years. Um, and then everyone can participate. Now, the world or certainly the markets and the people in the different national countries they want to know what's the reserve, what's the central bank forecast. So the central bank has its own, I think the central bank should have its own teams, team or teams in these forecasts, but they should separate out the teams from the bank itself and the bank should observe the forecast, should observe the forecasting competition and from that forecasting competition say what it thinks is its best forecasts and those become signed with the imprimatur of the central bank. They might be produced by the central bank team or one of them. They might be produced by somebody completely outside. They might be produced by some kind of hybrid. And all of this is visible to everyone. Um, and, so, um, and so we're starting to develop a market in which we can start to see who's really good at this. And some people are going to surprise us on both the upside and the downside. By the way, yeah. So that's what I'm suggesting. Yeah, I mean, what what I want to, what I'd like to understand is to what extent will it be teams, interdisciplinary teams of economists, and then some other non-economists, maybe biz, people who are expert in business, or maybe not even expert in business, people who, yep. who are just good forecasters. And when I was chatting with Warren Hatch from uh, Good Judgment, this is a organisation he set up with uh, Philip Tetlock. Yeah, he was telling me that it's people with good pattern recognition skills and then right. they could be in any discipline That's and right. people who are cognitively flexible or they're there as you were saying before they actually they're not um caught up uh, with their particular theory they're actually That's right. yeah they're re-evaluating everything That's you know, right. all That's the time right. so so the answer is we don't have to know the answer to that but we yes you would expect that the teams that are going to perform best will be hybrid teams will have economic well technically excellent economists in them. Uh, they'll have people who look at other kinds of things. Um, there will certainly be some surprises and some people who've always had a fascination with, you know, certain kinds of things which turn out to be relevant to how you forecast. Um, so that's where I would expect it to to end up. But maybe maybe it'll just be economic experts if they win the uh, if they win the competitions um all this tetlock stuff will have proven itself to be irrelevant for economics but both 
common sense and the evidence suggest that, that that's not the way it will turn out. And there aren't that many areas where at the center of government, you can improve performance and improve, and, and through that, improve economic performance somewhat. Uh, this is a this is one of those um, billion dollar bills on the pavement that we find ourselves talking about from time to time, Gene. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, we should probably wrap up on that, uh, Nicholas. I, I have to admit, though, I got the full, I uh, misremembered what Treasury's forecast is, 2023, 24 GDP forecast for Australia, one and a half percent. So not a, yeah. that was a bit off there. Well, um, you know, anyway, not a very memorable number, or perhaps it is memorable, but not in a good way. Oh, just so many numbers out there. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. Um, exactly. I, I feel sorry for these politicians who get uh, put on the spot about these different numbers from time. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Right. right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Douglas. That was terrific. And uh, yeah, fully... Um, fully on board with that suggestion. At the very least, it'd be a, a good trial, a good pilot. Yeah, exactly. And we can protect it out, see how it will work. Well, I'll just say one other thing, which is that this is, again, what we're talking about here is convening power, not executive power. So anyone can run this. The Business Council could run this. It's not. It, it won't be cheap, but it's not very expensive. Uh, having worked at the Business Council, I can tell you their budget easily would easily accommodate this. You could do it for a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, anyone can do this. Um, so it's, it's kind of extraordinary and pretty outrageous that we've really known this, that there are benefits here, that we can do this better. And it just gets ignored again and again. It got ignored in the review of the RBA that we had here. Um, it's pretty terrible that, um, we're not looking around and trying to grab hold of things that are in the ether that are starting to work um, and that we can benefit from. Yeah, I suppose there's a public benefit to it. It's not necessarily in the interests of the people in the Treasury or the Reserve Bank or the Bank of England or their ministers. I think that's one of the, the issues. Uh, well, yes, but economists, yes, but economists are pretty impatient with policymakers who don't do the right thing, but, they, but the economists have to figure this out themselves. And I would, I would, have, I, I would have thought that uh, it's well time for this to be standard economic advice and it's uh, very, very left-field economic advice at this stage. Mm. Okay, well, we'll see how your Financial Times op-ed is received. Uh, let's or, see. Uh, let's see what Ben says. <laughs> very good. He okay. might give you a call. Yeah, let's hope. Good. Let's hope. Okay. Thanks, Gene. Thanks, Douglas. <laughs>